I want to make a couple announcements before I get started. First announcement is good news. Uh, for those who are watching online, we have decided to open uh, the Monday night meeting back up to the public beginning next week. So, again, beginning next week, uh, you are welcome to come in person to the campus on Monday night at 7 p.m. Uh, for the session. Now, for those who are uncomfortable with coming in person, we will still continue to live stream these sessions uh, over the Internet. I also want to make another announcement about the handout. Uh, it is helpful to have the handout to follow uh, along in these sessions. And if you are watching online, I'd like you uh, just invite you to go to the website. It's uh, www.eibibleschool.org. And if you wait for the third banner to come up, you can click on the link and it'll take you to the Monday night meeting page where you can get uh, the handout. Okay, we're in a series where we're thinking about particular... Old Testament passages and events that point forward to the New Testament and that declare to us certain realities about the Christian life. Some of the questions that I'm interested in answering in this series is particularly, who are we as Christians? Who are we? What has God called us? Uh, who has he called us to be? What has he called us to uh, especially in these days, these difficult days in which we live, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be the church of Jesus Christ? And so we're thinking about that. Last week we looked at the, f the reality that we are those, the churches, the people of God are those who confess with their mouth. They confess that Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other way. He is the gate. He is the door. He is the way to the Father. And today we're going to turn to Psalm 2, and I can hardly think of a more appropriate passage uh, for the times in which we live. Psalm 2 is an extraordinary passage, and so um, I believe there's a message here that we need to hear. So with that, I want to begin with prayer, and then we will dive into this passage. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we are in need of you. And in this next hour, we need you to speak to us. We need you to open up your word to us. I need you, Father, by your spirit, to enable me to make your words clear and understandable and applicable. So, Father, meet us. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as Americans... We are obsessed with being happy. Now, what do I mean by happiness? I'm not talking so much about a superficial feeling or emotion of having a smile on your face, but I'm talking about something a little bit deeper in, than that. I'm talking about a deep sense of well-being, of wholeness, of having uh, fulfillment in life, of things being right deep within. And we long for that sense of well-being within us. Happiness for many is a goal to be pursued. Some is, for some, it's an ultimate goal to be pursued. Who doesn't want to be happy, right? As Americans, we say that everyone has an unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. Right? This is part of our uh, what we believe. Now, our culture doesn't just tell us that we have a right and a freedom to seek after happiness, but it also tells us how to get happiness. 
And one of the ways it tells us to get happiness is to buy it. And so, for instance, uh, Coca-Cola, right? We don't just sell products. We sell happiness. Happiness is a billion-dollar industry, right? And if you don't like Coca-Cola, well, you can get happy a different way. And, uh, and you can go the Pepsi route. Um, our culture also tells us that happiness, life fulfillment comes from self-knowledge. Happiness is throwing off other people's expectation of you and looking deep within yourself. Maybe, maybe you, uh, you know, go for a long hike on the Appalachian Trail and you discover yourself and then that is, you know, fulfillment. That's happiness. Being true to yourself. Uh, free from restraints. What other people think of you and being authentic. Chasing the dream. I don't know how many Hollywood movies have that kind of a message, right? Uh, being true to yourself no matter what anyone else says. But what's interesting is that psychologists, even unbelieving psychologists and researchers, researchers are observing that this pursuit of happiness is backfiring. And that the more we pursue happiness, the more unhappy we are. How about that? I wonder if you've experienced that. In fact, a few years ago, Ruth Whitman wrote this book, America the Anxious, how our pursuit of happiness is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. And she makes the point in the book that although we are one of the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth, we are also one of the nations with the highest use of antidepressants. Now that should say something, shouldn't it? If our obsession with happiness is backfiring, where do we turn to? Where do we turn to? Well, why don't we turn to the one who created us, who made us, who knows how we tick? Why don't we turn to the one who knows all things? Why don't we turn to our God and to his word? And so I'd like you, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 2. If you're not already there, turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 1 and 2 work together as an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. What's interesting about these two psalms is that they both answered the question, the same question, with complementary answers. Who is the truly happy person? That's the question that is being answered in Psalm 1 and 2. Who is the blessed one? Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed is the man who? Psalm 2 ends with the statement, Blessed are all who? Right? This is, this is the, the question. Who is the blessed Person. The word blessed could also be translated happy. If you look it up in a Hebrew lexicon, that Hebrew word, you'll come up, you'll come up with the words happy, fortunate, blessed. Those are your, your options. So you get the idea of what the word means. But note that the question is not so much, how can I be happy? But the question that is being answered in these two Psalms is really, who is happy? Which is a slightly different question. Notice that happiness here is, what's being communicated is that happiness is not an end in itself, but it is a byproduct of another pursuit entirely. Now that's huge right there. If you can grasp that, that happiness is not a goal, it is a byproduct of another goal, then you're getting somewhere. The New Testament describes Psalm 2 as a psalm of David. This means that it would have been written about 3,000 years ago or around 1,000 B.C. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. Some believe that this psalm was read at the coronation ceremonies of Israel's kings, although we really don't have any evidence for that, but it's possible. 
It's possible that the psalm describes the theology that lies behind Israel's kingdom, as well as it depicts the ideal king. And so as such, um, it, it, it seems that it's possible that Psalm 2 was written with a particular historical context in mind. Uh, and as we read this psalm, though, it's uh, very clear that it's also speaking of events that go beyond this, beyond any historical event that we read about in the pages of the Old Testament. Because as you read the Old Testament, you'll quickly discover that neither King David, nor his son King Solomon, nor any of the kings of Judah, or Israel by that matter, um, ever came close to fulfilling the words of this psalm. And because of this, I think it's appropriate to understand this psalm almost in a quasi, you know, um, interpreters are, aren't sure which way to go, but almost in a double sense, that it is prefigurative in some sense in that I think it does interact with historical realities of Israel's theology of kingdom, but also it is prophetic in nature, that it points ahead and it says this will happen one day. Now, we're still getting to Psalm 2. We're going to get there in a moment. Psalm 2 has how many verses? Twelve verses. And it is divided into four parts, four stanzas. And each of those stanzas has, you get it, three verses. Four times three is twelve. And each of those four stanzas, what's interesting about this psalm is that the speaker changes. The person speaking changes four times. So four stanzas, four speakers. Now what I'm going to do is read the psalm in its entirety, and then we have three sections tonight that we're going to work through. The first section is an explanation of the psalm right here in the context in which it was written. Secondly, we're going to think about the fulfillment of this psalm. And then thirdly, we want to pause and slow down and think about the significance of what we have learned as well as apply it to our lives. So those are the three big sections we're thinking about tonight. So let me read this psalm in its entirety. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Note this change in speaker now in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely, and then again this shift here, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. A beautiful psalm, a wonderful psalm. And it begins with the world speaking. The the, the first speaker is the world. The nations are speaking. And the psalm begins with this worldwide outlook, and the situation is not good. 
And I want you to note the mood. I want you to note all through this psalm, we're going to note the mood, the emotion. There's a lot of emotive language in this psalm. Um, there's words that are meant to be felt. And the mood shifts dramatically as we read through the psalm. But it begins of one, a mood of turmoil and rebellion and raging. The nations are in an uproar. They are disturbed. It's like the raging sea. They're making a commotion. You need to try to remember how it was this summer and how it still is going on in some places. The rioting that took place. This is kind of the picture of, of smashing windows and plundering stores and burning vehicles. People are angry. They are violent. And they're ready to go to any length to get their own way. The mood is tense. But I want you to notice that the mood is the very opposite of blessedness, happiness, contentment, shalom, everything being right, peace, right? It's the opposite of that. Well, what are these people trying to do? Well, the nations are rebelling against God and His anointed. That is, they've gathered together, they are conspiring to rebel against the Lord and His anointed. They are unified in their objective. They do not want to be subject to God. They want their independence. And I want you to note, first of all, that they are opposed, interestingly enough, not to one individual, but to two individuals. They are opposed to God, that's understandable, but they are also opposed to His anointed one. Now, in the context here, the anointed one simply refers to the one God has chosen to be king. There's a coronation psalm, right? And it's referring to that coronation ceremony. In Israel's day, when they, when, when they crown someone king, they would also pour oil on him. So you, for instance, have the coronation of Joash in 2 Kings 11, verse 12, and we read, then he brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony and they made him king and what? Anointed him, right? And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. So this was part of the coronation process. But what's interesting is if you look up that word anointed one in the Hebrew, you'll come face to face with the word Messiah. And if in that same word, Messiah is translated Christ in the New Testament. So all of these things, of course, are very interesting. But notice one more thing about this particular section of the passage, these first three verses. Note that kings and rulers don't usually cooperate together very well. They don't usually work well together. If you just think about some of the rulers of our day, President Trump of the United States, um, Vladimir Putin of Russia, um, President Xi of China, uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea. You don't think of them necessarily as best buds, you know, hanging out together and, and cooperating. But rulers tend to undercut each other. They tend to be against each other. But what's fascinating about this particular passage is, is that when it comes to overthrowing God and his anointed one, they're on the same page. They're together. They're conspiring together because they do not want God to rule over them. So what we have in these first three verses, I believe, is a description of the human heart in rebellion against God. And we have the first clue as to the source of our unhappiness. Why is there turmoil? Why are we upset? Why are we unhappy? 
It's not because we don't have a new car or a new iPhone or a can of Coca-Cola or Pepsi in our hands right now. It's because we do not want God to rule over us. Deep down inside, we are in rebellion against our God and against the king that he has crowned, the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, I want you to note that in verse 4, though, the scene shifts, and it shifts from the nations to Yahweh himself, to God himself. And he is pictured here as sitting on his throne in the heavens. Now, God is going to speak, and he enters the picture. And note the mood. I want you to note the mood constantly here. It's one of being absolutely undisturbed, resolute. God is not panicking. Oh, no, you know, the nations are in uproar. What am I going to do? But that's not at all what you get. In fact, their plans are so ludicrous that he is laughing at their rebellion and arrogance. He is mocking their futile attempt to usurp his throne. Now, this shouldn't be taken to mean that God doesn't have any concern for the nations, but rather it should be taken in the sense that he has no concern for their rebellion. Does that make sense? It's not that he doesn't care for them as individuals. He doesn't care that they're rebelling. it's not, a, it's not a threat at all to him. It doesn't unsettle him. He is undisturbed. And so what is the action? Well, God speaks, right? He will speak, verse 5, to them in his anger. And he will terrify them in his fury. So what does he say that causes so much fear? Well, he says this, verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He has established the king. And this fact, this fact ought to instill dread and fear in those in the nations. See, God's response to the rebellion is to establish his king on his mountain. It's very interesting, right? They're rebelling. They don't want anyone ruling over him. And God just moves ahead and sets up his king. Now, you, you will be ruled over. You will be ruled over, whether you like it or not. God moves forward with his own plan. And I want you to note, I think the takeaway in these, first, in these three verses is that man cannot obstruct God's plan. Isn't that wonderful? Man cannot hinder, stop, obstruct God's plans. He, God is unmoved. But then the scene shifts again from God to the newly installed king. Now the king is going to speak. The king who has just been crowned. And he is going to declare what God has already decreed. Now note that the mood here shifts to declaration. And the action is that the, the king will declare now two things to be true. First, he will declare that he is God's son. And secondly, he will declare that he has been given authority over all the nations. Now, these two things are at the heart of God's royal decree with his appointed king. It is a declaration of a relationship. You are my son, right? Today, I have begotten you. This is a, that is, there's a unique relationship between God and this appointed king. There's this intimate, filial, father-son relationship. Now, I want you to know this is... The language of covenant is the language of the covenant that God made with David because God made a covenant with David saying one of your sons is going to rule 
forever. And part of that promise is, God said, I will be a father to him, and he will be my son. And this is the language. But it's also a declaration you can see there in verse 8 of a worldwide rule. He says, ask of me, and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance. And the king's strength here is described as a rod of iron, and the weakness of the nations is described as the weakness of a clay pot. And so just imagine that rod of iron smashing clay pots. doesn't take much. This king will not just be another king among many. No, he is the king over all other kings. He is king of kings and lord of lords. I wonder how many of you a few years ago noticed when Sultan Muhammad V was crowned king. Anybody took notice? Anybody remember that important day? Why did you not take notice? Why did you not remember? Because he was crowned king of Malaysia. And as Americans, we are generally not too concerned with what goes on in Malaysia. But this king has been crowned king over all the nations. And so we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. We need to take heed. Well, the scene shifts again, and this time it is the narrator. The Spirit is speaking. Now I want you to notice how beautiful this psalm is put together. It begins with the world speaking, the nation speaking, but then it moves through the triune God. The Father speaks, the Son speaks, and then the Spirit speaks. It's really the narrator, but behind the narrator is the Spirit of God who inspired this writing, is it not? And the Spirit is seen here as pleading, urging and exhorting. Just a side note here. This psalm, and you students want to pay attention because this is part of your assignment, but this psalm gives us a world view. Uh, fascinating. This psalm gives us a, a fairly succinct but comprehensive worldview, a picture of reality, of history, of God's perspective and involvement in the affairs of men. Well, the mood shifts from declaration to pleading. I want you to note there's a shift from the indicative mood. I'm speaking about grammar here for a minute. From the indicative mood to the imperative. The indicative mood is the mood of reality. It, it, it's statements. It's facts. It's declaration. But here it moves to imperatives. That means it moves to commands. Note five commands in three verses. That's a lot. Note the commands. Be wise. Be warned. Serve. Rejoice. Kiss the sun. These commands that are going out. Well, what is the action? The nation. The action is left up to the nations. They get to choose. What are they going to do? What are you going to do? They can either submit, and or they can continue to reject the sun. The rebellious kings of the earth, and by extension, their people. That means all of us have a choice, and we're given some wise advice. In light of God's newly appointed king and in light of his mission to subdue the world, we are counseled and warned to submit ourselves to God and his appointed son. Now, if they're going to submit to God, they must also submit to his son. And that's important, right? If they're going to submit to God, they must submit to his son. This is true in scripture, all through scripture, that God and his son always go together. You can't have one without the other. 
God has given all authority in heaven and on earth to His Son. I'm maybe getting ahead of myself a little bit, but to reject the Son is to reject the Father. It's to reject God Himself. And so they are exhorted, kiss the Son. I have due homage to the Son, but in some translations, literally it's kiss the Son. It's that language of submission, of homage. Now the psalm ends with an emphasis on the crowned son. And failure to submit to the son results in experiencing his wrath. He says, for his wrath may soon be kindled, right? The king's wrath and perishing. But on the other hand, those who run to the son and take refuge in him and submit to his reign, they experience what? Experience blessing, do they not? Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And this is key to the whole psalm. How do you go from a life of raging and turmoil and commotion and antagonism against God to a life of enduring happiness and joy and well-being? What all depends on our relationship to the one whom God has established as king. Does it not? It all depends on that. So if we're going to respond to this psalm, it becomes imperative that we figure out, well, who is this person, right? Who is the son? I kind of leaked it out a little bit already. But who is this being that God has crowned king over all the nations? Well, the Bible does not leave us guessing, but makes it explicitly clear. Now, I'm going to move pretty rapidly through this section because I want you, and I want you to more hear this uh, and the power of this because um, we're going to work through multiple texts and I'm not going to go to these texts they're in your notes and so you can turn to those later but about a thousand years after Psalm 2 was written around 4 to 6 BC an angel appeared to a woman named Mary who was engaged to a man named Joseph and the angel said basically don't be afraid you're going to bear a child and his name is going to be Jesus. And he's going, um, he's going to be the son of God. And he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. So you have in this message from the angel to Mary, language of Psalm 2. And so the question that comes into our minds as we're reading this, as we're reading through the Gospels and this story of Jesus, could this be the one, right? Is, is this perhaps the one that we were reading about in Psalm 2? Well, from the outside, the first 30 or so years of Jesus' life were mostly unremarkable. He faithfully attended the synagogue. He went to Jerusalem once a year for Passover. He worked as a carpenter with his father, and he helped support his mothers and, and his siblings. But those who knew Jesus well knew that there was something extraordinary about him. I don't think you could live with Jesus and not know that there was something unique about him, something special about him. And that special thing was that he never sinned. Not once. Imagine living with someone who never sinned. Um, I think if you have children of your own, you can appreciate how remarkable this is. Um, But when Jesus was about 30 years old, he laid aside his tools and he left his home, home and he walked down to the Jordan River 
where his cousin John was preaching to large crowds. Now, it seems to me that John knew Jesus fairly well. They must have gotten together at least once a year at Passover. That's when they probably would have encountered. So they, over the years, they knew each other quite well. And there John is, uh, preaching to the crowds, calling them to repent and be baptized. John's baptism was a humbling act. It was recognition and a confession that I'm a sinner and that I need to be washed clean, represented by the water. Now Jesus appears, and he enters the water to be baptized by his cousin John, and John looks at him and says, No way. No way. I need to be baptized by you. And what does Jesus say? He says, John, permit it now to fulfill all righteousness. And there Jesus was baptized, demonstrating his willingness to identify with sinful humanity. Isn't that incredible? He was willing to identify himself. From the perspective of the crowd, he's another sinner, humbling himself, right? There's hundreds of people there, maybe thousands. He's humbling himself, saying, I'm a sinner and I need to be washed too. And this marked the beginning of his mission to seek and to save those who were lost. And as he came out of the water, two things happened that are quite remarkable for this passage that we're thinking about. The first thing is that the Holy Spirit, we know what happens, right? The Holy Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a what? A dove, right? And in the book of Acts, we are told that the Holy Spirit coming upon him was his anointing. There's a, there's a verse there that connects the two, that the anointing was the Spirit of God coming upon him. And then the next thing that happens to him is a voice from heaven, the Father himself, God himself saying what? This is my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. God quotes Psalm 2, the coronation psalm. And in a sense, God is saying, listen up, everybody. This is my son. This is my king. And it's so important that we understand what's going on here. I find this incredibly fascinating. Because when you think of a coronation, when I think of a coronation, I think of gold, glitter, trumpets, thousands of people glorying in this person, right? This person is the center of attention. I was just reading about the millions upon millions. I mean, we're talking about the tens of millions of dollars that are spent on coronations in certain countries. But then you come to the coronation of the Son of God. And he's just wearing a simple robe. And it is an act of humility. And it doesn't cost a penny. It's quite amazing how God chooses to crown his son. Well, Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his ministry. Jesus has been crowned king, and what is the first thing he does? Well, he goes to war. That's what kings do, right? Kings go to war, and Jesus goes to war. Immediately after his baptism, he is driven into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days, and then he enters in to a massive conflict with the devil. Huge conflict. And he wins a massive victory. It is the first victory over the devil by a human being in the history of humanity. Isn't that incredible? It's quite something. 
And then we are told in the Gospels that he comes out in the power of the Spirit. And what does he do? For the next year or two, he goes about in the land of Israel and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about a new king and a new reign. And he demonstrates his royal authority by healing the sick and casting out demons and opening blind eyes and even raising people from the dead. Wow. Then one day, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're really kind to him because they could have said, well, you know, drunkard or crazy man. or I mean, They could have probably come up with all sorts of things people were saying about Jesus. But they said, well, you know, some are saying John the Baptist and Elijah. They're, they're being pretty nice. Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And what does Peter How does Peter respond? Peter says, You are the Christ of God. You are the anointed one of God. That's Psalm 2, is it not? About a week later, Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a high mountain and he is transfigured before his disciples. We have to understand that from the outside, Jesus appeared to be an ordinary human being. In fact, he was... From what I understand, and as I understand the Word of God, he was an unremarkable human being. You know what it's like to go into a room and there's a person who is remarkable. They stand out and your attention is drawn to them. Whoa, look at that person. But there was something about Jesus' humanity that was very ordinary. Does that make sense? So ordinary that it was very hard to get beyond his ordinariness, his humanity. Uh, it, was, it was difficult to believe that he was actually the Son of God. But here in this moment, on this mountain, the glory of Jesus, Jesus' divinity shone through. Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. Try looking into the brightness of the sunshine. And his clothing became white as light. And Moses and Elijah appeared with him. And once again, God speaks from heaven saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, at this point... Psalm 2 is connected with this individual so many times, right? Surely this is the one, right? This is the one of whom Psalm 2 speaks, but it doesn't end there. There were many, especially of the Jewish religious leaders, who did not accept Jesus as the anointed one, as the king, as the son of God, as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And yet, listen to this, ironically, they contributed to the psalm's fulfillment because they raged against Jesus. And they even conspired with Herod and Pilate. Now think about this. The religious leaders hated Herod and Pilate. <laughs> they, they, they hated the, the, the Romans and the Romans' puppets in Judea. But here they're together. They're plotting together to overthrow Jesus. And without even knowing it, unwittingly, they are fulfilling the very words in Psalm 2, raging against 
the anointed one, God and the anointed one. Isn't that incredible? And so although they were trying to destroy God's son, they were actually accomplishing his purpose because it was God's plan that Jesus, his anointed one, should die for our sins and that he should bear our judgment. See, why is it possible in Psalm 2 at the very end to take refuge in the son? Why is that even a possibility? It's because Jesus went to a cross and there took in himself the punishment for our rebellion, for our raging, for our conspiring against him. He took that punishment. And so he says, you can come to me now and you can have forgiveness. Jesus made a way for rebellion to be forgiven. But we know the story, right? Jesus does not remain dead. Three days after his death, he is raised to new life. And we are told both in the book of Acts and in the book of Romans, and the passages are there in your notes, and you can look them up, that this resurrection of Jesus Christ was a declaration that Jesus was indeed God's appointed son, the one whom he has decreed to be king over all the nations, over all the earth. And so in one sense, when God raises Jesus from the dead, he is declaring to the whole world, pay attention, this is my son. Take heed, be warned. And again, we have the language of Psalm 2. But 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven, promising to come back again. And the book of Revelation describes Jesus' second coming as a wonderful day a blessed day for all those who have taken refuge in Jesus, for all those who have submitted to his reign. But it also describes the return of Jesus Christ as a terrible day for all those who have rejected his reign. It describes it as a day of wrath. And it is significant that all of the New Testament passages, every single New Testament passage that describes Jesus as ruling with a rod of iron, that, that, that refers to the rod of iron in Psalm 2, they're all found in the book of Revelation and they all point forward in time. I'm going to read here a section from Revelation 19 because it is a, an amazing passage. It is a description of Christ's second coming. And I want you to take note to the language of Psalm 2 in it. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And it's very clear in the context of the book of Revelation that he's referring here to Jesus Christ. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth, that is the mouth of Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And note, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. You see, Jesus' first coming was in mercy, inviting all peoples to enter his kingdom, to submit to his reign. But Jesus' second coming will be in judgment, punishing all those who refuse to submit to his reign. So, with that very quick survey of Jesus' life, What can we say about Psalm 2? 
who is it speaking of? Who, who is Psalm 2 pointing? Who, who is it fulfilled in? Who is the one we must take refuge? Well, I believe it's unmistakable. The Bible says it's unmistakable. It is none other than Jesus Christ. And so we're going to shift here, shift gears, because we want to slow down and we want to think about the significance of all this for our lives. What are some of the takeaways for us in regards to all of this that we've painted, these truths that we've thought about tonight? Are you all doing okay? Are you all following? We're good? Take a breath. All right. Section three, last section. Number one, Jesus has been crowned King of Kings and his rule is extending over all the nations. A big takeaway, I believe, for us tonight is that Jesus is reigning tonight. I hope that's encouraging. He's on his throne. He is in a co-regency with his Father. It's helpful to think of it that way. He has been raised to the right hand of God and he is reigning until all his enemies are his footstool. He has asked and God has given to him all the nations as his inheritance. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus' kingdom is unimaginably greater than any earthly kingdom. It is a kingdom that is expanding at this very moment. As we are speaking here, it is expanding. It extends over every continent into every country and into every language. You can maybe depict it this way. He's been crowned king at his first coming and his kingdom is expanding into all the nations. The powers of darkness cannot stop it. This doesn't mean, and I want you to hear what I'm not saying, it doesn't mean that the whole world will one day become Christian. So I don't personally believe in a post-millennial view, if you know what I mean by that, that everyone will end up becoming a Christian. But it does mean this, that when Jesus Christ comes back, there's nowhere you can go on the face of this earth that you will not find some Christians. (laughs) You will not find some people who believe in Jesus Christ because every tongue, every nation will one day bow before him, right? Declaring him to be king. Now that should be hugely comforting to us. That with all that's going on in our world and in our nation, we need to pause and remind ourselves Jesus is reigning. God is undisturbed by all the commotion that's going on on this earth. He's laughing at it, in a sense. That's how undisturbed he is, unthreatened by it all. And we need to be reminded of that. This is the one we serve if we have submitted ourselves to him. But number two, and that's the first takeaway, Jesus is reigning. Number two, when the rulers of the earth conspire against the Lord and his anointed, it is doomed to failure. And that is implied by the questions, the rhetorical questions, at the beginning of Psalm 2. I would encourage you to go back to Psalm 2 because we're going to end our time there in Psalm 2. You may not have even moved from Psalm 2, um, but that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Note the questions. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? In other words, what's the point of rebelling against God since it is sure to fail? That's kind of the idea, right? What's the point? It is pointless. All the raging and all the commotion and all the rebellion, it's all pointless. 
because it is all doomed to failure. It is sheer insanity. It is sheer insanity to think that anyone can escape escape God's dominion, God's rule. And this is important, I think, for us to remember as well. Because the reality is that there are rulers and movements and people in this nation who are conspiring against God and His anointed ones. Now, the reality is that has been true of every nation of all times. And so you could almost plot it like this. The nations have always been in rebellion against God. But sometimes, and that's why I have the little wavy line here at the bottom, sometimes it's a little more overt. You know what I mean? Obvious. And as we live in this day, in this country, I think we're seeing a little more of the obviousness of it all, is it not? People are rebelling, they are conspiring. And note that it isn't just against us, Christians, or it is against God, right? It is against His Anointed One. It is against God's ways. It's against God's rule. It's against God's righteous decrees and judgments. It's against God. And we need to remember this. We need to remember that all of this raging is doomed to failure. And when the opposition mounts against God, but even when the opposition mounts against us, when people turn against God's people, when it appears that we are losing and that the enemies of the cross are winning, we need to remember that Jesus is still reigning and that it is all doomed to fail. Isn't that wonderful? We need to be reminded of these things. Acts chapter 4 is a fascinating chapter. You students have to read it for one of your assignment questions. And I'm kind of excited about you thinking about that. But Acts chapter 4 is fascinating because it describes the opposition that was mounting against early Christians. And what's interesting is is that the re- this reality that we're talking about, these truths, Psalm 2 in particular, is what gave strength and boldness to the early church to face the opposition that they were facing. And I believe that it's the same truths, the same truths of Psalm 2 that will encourage and strengthen and grant boldness to the church of Jesus Christ today. So this is a wonderful psalm to meditate upon. So that's point number two. And finally, point number three is that the period between Jesus' first and second coming is people's opportunity to respond to the reign of God in His Son. The last section of Psalm 2 applies to us in this time period. The reality is that God has established His King on Mount Zion and His first coming. He he has unmistakably, clearly been crowned King and He's reigning right now, right? He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. But He has not yet come in judgment. He has not yet shattered the kingdom's with a rod of iron like he's shattered jars of clay. That hasn't happened yet. And so we're living in this in-between time period. And that in-between time period is this opportunity to take heed to the warning at the end of this psalm. Take heed. Be warned. Show discernment. Like, use your brain. (laughs) Think about what's going on here. Worship Yahweh with fear. So respond to the Father, but also kiss the Son, that He be not angry. And look what it says at the uh, in verse 12, 
for his wrath may soon be kindled. It's an interesting uh, verse there. His wrath may quickly be kindled. And this is not contradicting those passages that speak of God as being a God who is slow to anger. But we need to realize tonight that even God's slowness to anger, his patience has limits. There's a point when God's slowness to anger, his patience comes to an end. And God steps into history and he judges and he makes things right. All that has been wrong. And so it's warning us here of a coming day of wrath. And then it says, how blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus. Last spring, I don't know if you remember last spring, you may have remembered multiple tornado warnings here in Greenville, South Carolina. And so you maybe remember that your phone started to vibrate or ding, and you started getting this warning message. You know, a tornado is imminent. A possible tornado will hit your house and blow you away. And, of course, these always came after we had put our kids to bed. I don't know how this worked for you all, but it's how it worked out for us. And so as dutiful parents, we're waking our children up and grabbing, taking them out of bed and taking them down to the basement into a place of safety, an inner room, a place of refuge. Why did we do that? We could, because we believed that the tornado was a real threat, right? We, we believed the threat, we believed the message about the threat, and we responded and we took refuge. Now, my friends, I recognize that your phones may not be flashing a warning right now, but the reality is that the Word of God is flashing a warning to us. And it is a warning of impending judgment of a day called the day of God's wrath. And the question is, who will be kept safe on that day? Who will be okay on that day? Who will be safe when God begins to shake this universe? The book of Hebrews talks about that. God shaking this universe. Who's going to be okay? Well, only those who have heeded the warning, right? who believed it and heeded it and have taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only refuge against the wrath of God. Why is he the only refuge? Because he's the one who bore the wrath of God in our place on the cross. And if you take refuge in him, God will see to it that you do not receive wrath twice. If you you receive it if he's received it for you, you won't have to receive it for yourself. That's a one, that's wonderful news. And if we run to him and trust in him and hide in him, we will be safe on that day. So I wonder if you've experienced the blessedness of taking refuge in Jesus. And I want to end on a more positive note. Um, there is a There is a note of judgment in this psalm. And we... Don't want to overlook it. That's why I pointed it out. But it ends on a positive note, doesn't it? How blessed are those who take refuge in him. I wonder if you've experienced that. Seek happiness and you'll lose it. Submit to Jesus, take refuge in Jesus, live for Jesus, and you'll discover that you're happy. It's a byproduct of another pursuit. 
And again, I'm not just speaking of a feeling or of being financially secure or life going your way. Life around you on the outside might be crazy. But what I have in mind is a deep sense of well-being, of wholeness, of things being right. The peace, the joy, the well-being of being right with the living God. That's a possibility. Have you experienced that? Have you taken refuge in Jesus or are you still in rebellion in opposition to Him? All right, I'm taking us right up to 8 o'clock. I'm sorry, but that's what we're doing. I want us to realize, I mean, I am realizing that I'm speaking mostly to people who would say, yes, I have. I've taken refuge in Jesus. And so I want to spend just the last few minutes here saying, Okay, what about this? What if... No, I skipped that. What if I've taken refuge in Jesus, but I'm not experiencing the blessing that you're talking about? That inner sense of well-being. Is that possible? Yes, I fled to Jesus, but right now I'm not feeling what you're talking about. I don't sense that inner peace with God right now. Well, what are options? Because I really want to bring this home. I want to take this all the way down to our everyday lives and where we might be tonight. Number one, there may be unrepentant sin in our life. That is, we may have allowed a little bit of rebellion to creep back in. That's possible. Our hearts may be divided, and we are miserable. Well, what's the answer? It's a pretty simple answer. We need to get back down on our knees in submission to Jesus Christ. We need to let go of our sin. We need to take our refuge in the power of Jesus' sacrifice to not only cleanse our sin, but to empower us to deal with our sin. So we we need to face our sin. We need to own it. We need to confess it. Right? That's one possibility. Would you agree with me that's a possibility? Number two, we may be focused on the wrong object. We've taken refuge in Jesus, but now we're not feeling this blessedness that's being described here. And it might be because we're in the refuge looking out the window at all the chaos and rebellion. (laughs) There shouldn't be any windows in a refuge. Um, I remember when the tornadoes were coming by, I wanted to see the tornado. So I'd go out to the window, and my kids were all like, Daddy, 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 come back into the inner safety room. So I was doing this. But sometimes we can be looking at all the chaos and all the rebellion and all the raging on the outside, and we're discouraged, frankly. We're fearful. Maybe we're doubting. Maybe we're anxious. Maybe we're depressed. And we need to get our focus back on God and back on His reign and back on His beloved Son We might need to limit our intake of the news. There's a practical application, right? And increase our intake of God's word and reality of of what's really true. So that's a possibility. Would you agree with me? All right, third, and we're getting there. We may be taking refuge in something other than Jesus. So yes... Perhaps once upon a time we took refuge in Jesus and in a sense we're still taking refuge in Jesus but now we find ourselves taking refuge in things other than Jesus. Places other than Jesus. Remember that a refuge is a place we run to when we're in trouble. Where do you run to 
when you feel threatened, when you are in trouble, when you feel discouraged? Where do you run to? That's a really great question, a real probing question, a real convicting question. Do we take refuge in food? You know, that's why we call it comfort food, right? <laughs> I feel bad. I'm going to eat chocolate. <laughs> um, not all chocolate is bad. <clears throat> Entertainment. That's a big one. I feel bad. I'm discouraged. I'm going to binge watch something, right? Where do you go when you're stressed? Maybe you take refuge in achievements or in successes, in clothing, what people think of you, in diet, in supplements, should I say it? In essential... (laughs) In human relationships, right? We take refuge in people that we lean on. But these things can't ultimately rescue us. It's like taking refuge... In, sand, in a sand castle. But we have to take refuge in Jesus. And how do we do that? How do we take refuge in Jesus? Well, I don't want to keep it abstract. I want to make this more concrete. And I want, you to, I want to point your attention to the rest of the Psalms. I told you earlier that Psalm 1 and 2 is an introduction to the rest of the Psalms. How can you find refuge in times of turmoil in Jesus? Go to the rest of the Psalms because they're kind of a how-to to do how to do it. Uh, you, you read the rest of the Psalms and it's people who are in trouble and they're like, oh no, oh no, you know, what do I do? And by the end of the Psalm, they come to a place of faith and trust in Jesus. And as you walk through those Psalms, you too can learn how to do that, how to run to Christ, how to run to God. All right, one last point. And this is a huge point and I don't want you to miss this point. We will not experience the full blessing this passage promises us until Jesus comes back. Can we just say this? We are not yet in the new heavens and new earth. We are not there yet. We live in a world, yes, where there is the happiness and joy of being right with God. But it is mixed with the sorrow in suffering, in pain of living in a sinful world. And you need to realize that sometimes. Sometimes you just need to stop and realize that. And as Christians, we live with this tension. Yes, we've been given new life. Yes, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Yes, we have a new relationship with Christ um, and with God. And yet we still sin, do we not? And we're still affected by other people's sin. And within and without We are affected by these things. But as those who have taken refuge in Jesus, we know that this world is not all there is. That's our hope, right? We know that one day Jesus comes back and he will bring with him a new heavens and a new earth that is not corrupted in any way, by any means, by any sin. And there we will experience the full and unbridled blessing of living under our King Jesus. So God has crowned Jesus king over the whole earth. That's a reality. It's a reality whether you acknowledge it or not. It's like gravity. It's real. Our response to that reality, though, will determine our experience both for now and for eternity. Jesus is king. What are are you going to do about that? Christians are those who have welcomed his reign into their lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its encouragement to us. Use it to strengthen our faith. 
Grant us boldness. Grant us assuredness, assurance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.